Hi, I'm Samir Kaji, your host of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. Today, we're thrilled to bring you my conversation with Miriam Rivera, who co-founded Ulu Ventures, which just raised its third fund with a focus on backing exceptional underrepresented founders. Before starting Ulu Ventures with her husband, Clint, Miriam held a number of roles, including Deputy General Counsel at Google, where she was the company's second attorney. She also currently serves on the investment committee of the Acumen Fund America, an impact investing firm investing in for-profit companies serving the needs of low-income Americans. She's also on the board of the Kauffman Foundation. In this week's show, we covered a whole host of topics, including moving from angel investing to starting a firm, being a husband and wife team, why they employ a large portfolio strategy, and why diversity is so important to her. Now let's get into the episode to hear all of that and more. On the podcast, we've spoken a lot about the importance of getting fund operations right. One of those things that you must do is getting the right fund administrator. And we're pleased to have this episode brought to you by one of the best in the business in Standish Management, an employee-owned company. As the largest provider of fund admins of EC, they currently serve approximately 750 venture capital funds with over $150 billion in committed capital under admin. Standish has also been designed by experienced CFOs with a deep understanding of the service needs of both the finance departments and GPs at every stage of the product lifecycle. Standish can also handle all the needs of a finance department, so GPs can do what they do best, and that's invest and help entrepreneurs. Check them out at standishmanagement.com. Hi, Miriam. Great to have you on the show. Good morning, Samir. It's great to be here. I always like to start off with people's journey into investing. You started off your career as a attorney and, and spent many roles as a corporate attorney. What led to your path into investing in startups? As an attorney, I was working at Roebuck Flager and Harrison uh, when I graduated, and I saw a couple of our partners actually go into venture capital. Uh, one of them went into Benchmark and another one went into a kind of a med tech firm. So I saw that it was a possible transition. And when I left Google, initially, I thought I would end up uh, working for another company as the general counsel, because I was only the VP and deputy general counsel of the company. Uh, but I quickly realized that even though I hadn't achieved the top rung, I had done all the work associated with it. And I had done it in one of the most interesting environments that I could imagine. So there wasn't another legal job that just felt like it was going to hold my curiosity as a learner. And so going into venture capital was a next logical step. And you started off as you and Clint, uh, who's your current, current partner in both the professional and personal context, did a lot of angel investing personally off your own balance sheet, ultimately decided to launch a firm and, and take outside capital. And I always wonder what is the thinking about taking outside capital, raising a firm versus continuing to do angel investing, which you're very successful. How did you think about the world when you when you launched Ulu? The main opportunity that Ulu provided us was uh, the chance to help more entrepreneurs and to be able to provide more capital um, to ideas that we believed in. The thing that was interesting about uh, being an angel is you can actually do very well. Um, and it's a lot less uh, overhead than fundraising, <laughs> but you do um, have a more limited um, amount of capital that you can bring to bear on the companies that you believe in. And so it was really uh, exciting to be able to do it more. And I think part of that is our mission around uh, two aspects of our business. 
One, we really believe that diverse teams could outperform and that they were underinvested in dramatically in our country. Uh, and that even as a small firm, we could make a measurable difference in that. The other thing is we wanted to bring uh, more analytic tools uh, into venture capital and into use so that more people um, could experience a less biased process for getting access to capital. I do want to get into both of those things because I think they're very unique, both from the standpoint of how you think about portfolio constructions, the methodologies that eliminate some of these biases, which do tie into how you serve this new market of entrepreneurs, often many that are underdogs and underrepresented. But let's go back to going from Nandel. You mentioned fundraising being brand new, right? Raising capital from family offices and institutionals. And one of the things that was really unique, and I remember having this conversation with both you and Clint in the early days, is that there's this old stigma about people that, you know, are partners, you know, personalized, you, you being husband and wife, and then starting businesses together. And a lot of founders haven't gotten funded because of that, a lot of companies. I'm really curious, and how did those conversations go? So we have had this experience both as entrepreneurs and as VCs. Uh, Clint and I were founders of a startup company in the late 90s together. And at one point, I had our first child. Uh, within months, the board um, that was now being formed by a new VC who was going to be um, the Series B investor did not want a husband and wife team. So he basically asked, that I leave the company in order for the round to go through. Um, I did that. That was not the easiest thing on a husband and wife team. But later on, when we went into venture, it wasn't much better. <laughs> and I'll tell you that we were told flat out by many, in particular funds, the funds um, really did not like a husband and wife team. And most of them said things like, no one will ever invest in a husband and wife team or I wouldn't put this forward to LPs uh, because it would just be one more wrinkle. Um, and as a fund of funds, I have enough challenges, you know, because I've got to have fees on top of fees. Uh, and so this is just not something that I think will play well in the market. So those were the kinds of comments that we had. And we initially thought to raise a fund at about year four and those comments basically uh, gave us pause and led us to wait until we had enough of an established track record to go back out to market and be able to um, obtain our own LPs. And fund of funds have typically been a smaller segment of our group of LPs, I think in part because of the challenges they experience. We do have some great funds of funds, um, in particular, those that are focused on issues of diversity or those that are focused on more quantitative approaches to venture capital, um, but they're um, really independent thinkers compared to the average fund of funds. One thing that is not germane to the two of you is that a lot of people do have personal relationships before they enter into a partnership within a firm. And those are two different things. And, and sometimes you have to have really difficult conversations prior to, to doing that. I had Satya Patel as one of our guests and him and Hunter had known each other for a really long time. But they went through this thoughtful, extensive process to determine if they were truly aligned from a professional standpoint, the type of firm, the type of investing they wanted to do. What did you and Clint do 
given that you had known so much about each other, how did you get comfortable that working together in a firm that's probably going to last 15, 20, 30 years was the right thing? That was a big undertaking for us. And it wasn't really clear until um, we actually took some time um, apart and were working on different efforts to see if this was really going to be something that we wanted to do. For a time, each of us um, both went and worked at a portfolio company or a startup company. Uh, Another uh, opportunity that I had was to potentially work on an impact fund. Clint had an opportunity to potentially lead a fund uh, with a larger firm uh, that would be kind of a seed-focused fund. And as we went down the path, we both got different data and feedback that told us, this is crazy. We actually have this amazing track record together. And but for the fact that we're married, um, nobody would have any concerns of us being a team because we've actually worked together for more years than most firms even endure. (laughs) And we've also gone through more hardships as a team together, like in our startup, and we're still married, right? Like how many startup founders do you know that have a breakup, a founder breakup and are still friends, let alone married um, 20 something years later? It's not that common. Uh, So we realized just from both experimenting with different ideas and understanding our core strengths and our durability in the face of hardship, in part because we have a family. It's like one of the most important things in each of our lives. And I think that has made it easier for us to um, endure hardships and to really work at having a quality relationship. And we actually really work at it too. That's something that we've gotten coaching from the Kaufman Fellows Program. We've worked with an executive coach there. Um, We've uh, aligned different uh, coaches over time uh, to help us with different issues. I'm currently joining Chief as a way to um, scale, skill up uh, and develop better ways of balancing my career and and my family life and self care in the context of being a CEO of Ulu Ventures. A lot of great points embedded in there. I I do agree with you that outside of the conventional wisdom that you don't invest in founding teams, whether it's a company or a firm that have these personal relationships. To me, it's very clear that you're very complimentary. You have a very unique background, both on the attorney side, but just in terms of your reach into the the underrepresented world, your passion for it. Clint, I think, is one of the most analytical people I've ever met and has published some great pieces around portfolio construction and decision-making frameworks both of which I want to dig into a little bit. So you're launching Fund One. The two of you both have these views on what in venture works and what doesn't work. Tell us a little bit about those two methodologies. One, how you look at portfolio construction, why you invest in more companies. And then secondarily, which we can save after you answer, is really around decision making, because I do like the concept and the notion of how do you eliminate these biases that exists just naturally with human beings. So maybe we take the first part of the question first. One, the odds of any one company being successful in venture are very small. And I think people don't appreciate how small they really are. 
according to Cambridge Associates, they looked at a 15-year period in venture. It's about a 2.5% chance um, that a company is successful, or about 2.5% of the companies in venture are successful, and that leads to most of the profit in the entire industry. So when you think about it, there's something like four to 6,000 investments made in any given year. You're talking about 2.5% of those investments actually leading to nearly all the profit. So it's really clear that it's a long tail uh, industry. And you know some people call it the power law, some people call it long tail. But one of the things that you'll realize is that the profit is at the extreme end. So inventor is one of the few asset categories where you actually want regression to the mean because the mean is much higher than the median. And it, normally when you think about returns, you think about them being normally distributed and the mean and the median almost overlap each other. But in venture capital, um, the mean return for early stage venture is about 22%. Uh, and the median is about 5.6%. So the larger your portfolio, the more likely you are to approach the mean, which is desirable in venture. Yeah. And so, so you, you you did mention, and, and I, I often do think about the power line, and it is extreme in terms of the distribution of returns, that 2.5% of those companies ultimately lead to those fund returning type of outcomes. So then how do you think about the number of companies if you look at the traditional seed fund, it's 20 to 35 companies typically with 50% of the fund being for initial investments and 50% for reserve. Can you walk us through exactly what that means from Ulu's standpoint and the number of companies that you feel is necessary to get that type of true mean return consistently fund after fund? We also looked at some other data that came from the top tier funds. Uh, it had uh, been disclosed as Horsley Bridge data that for the top firms, people like the Sequoias, uh, Benchmarks of the World, that the amount of return that they generated, 4.5% of their companies, 4.5% of the top VC firm portfolio companies, generated nearly two-thirds of their profit. So again, even the best of the best are not that good at picking companies. <laughs> uh, and so what we realized is uh, that indicates a large portfolio. And we also saw that really for a lot of these firms, part of the way that they got so successful is that they actually had very large portfolios well, a partner might make one to two investments a year at Sequoia. Um, Sequoia overall is holding one of the largest portfolios out there. And so, you know, they do it through their growth fund and they invest in later stages and they get all the names that are like, you know, unicorn names. Uh, but they figure out a different way to get to more companies in the portfolio. What we do is we looked at mathematically, how many companies would you need to have in your portfolio given um, our ability to select at this top tier level in order to um, generate the kinds of returns that we're looking to achieve, which are 3x or better funds. And we also wanted to look at 
on a fund over fund basis. And it turned out that somewhere between 70 and 100 is the right number from a mathematical perspective, given our ability to select from such top tier uh, startups as we have access to here in Silicon Valley. One of the things that historically has been said about funds that have a lot of portfolio companies is their spray and pray, low ownership, low conviction bets, and that you know, it's really hard to for a lot of LPs to understand how that works. I do think that's changed to a certain degree, as we've seen so many funds with large portfolios do exceptionally well. And there are various perspectives on that. Your perspective, I think, is really interesting and love for you to share that. And how do you think about larger portfolio? Do you actually get lower ownership than those funds that you put in more, more capital? reserve more capital for their pro rata, and ultimately um, have fewer companies that you know they're investing in. How do you think about that? And, and what are the trade-offs potentially? The way that we think about it is it's kind of an old adage that you want to buy low and sell high. Well, part of what happens when you follow a approach where you invest most of your money up front is that you actually um, retain a higher ownership percentage in those companies even as they scale and as they raise uh, money at higher and higher valuations. And part of what happens in venture is that the risk goes down less quickly than the price goes up on companies that are doing well. And so what we see, for example, is when you're an early investor in a company like, let's say, SoFi, as we were first round investors in SoFi. The multiple um, that we have from that first investment is 10x the next uh, round in that same company. And that's an indicator to us that even though we don't know whether a company is going to be successful or not, it's way better for us to put most of our capital available in the early rounds as opposed to buying it as it keeps getting more and more expensive. So we have a very different reserve strategy from the average fund. We don't um, hold money for particular companies. What we do is hold a pot of money for those companies that can achieve the hurdle rate that we set for follow-ons. What is the uh, the follow-on reserve rate versus the initial in terms of percentages? So we would probably reserve about 20 to 30% of a fund for follow-ons. And we only make follow-on investments in companies that achieve the same hurdle rate as the initial investment, which is a 10x probability weighted multiple. And what ends up happening is that we're forced to say no to things that are also good opportunities, like 5x or 3x um, perspective uh, multiples. But it tends to make our follow-on investments have a very similar return profile as our initial investment. So what we try to tell our LPs is this is a pure play seed fund. We want to be a part of your diversified portfolio where you're actually looking to get some alpha and we're going to put money at high risk in the early stages and all of our capital is going to be at that kind of return profile and unlike other firms that call themselves seed funds, but two thirds or more of their capital is actually going in into the later stages in their follow on investments. It's a great point. And one of our previous guests, Jamie Rode of Virtus, which is a family office, 
based on the data that she's looked at, which is pretty extensive, she has said that she'd prefer the seed funds that she invests in to have zero for reserves and put everything at the seed stage. Now, the counterpoint typically on that is you can't level up with your winners and put the uh, majority of your capital with the, uh, the companies that are breakouts. The other point that historically has come up is that does it impact your ability to work with the best entrepreneurs who may want a partner that can invest across multiple rounds? Tell us a little bit about that and, and how you think that impacts or doesn't impact your ability to get into the, the companies that you want. You know, we often have this discussion with entrepreneurs about uh, follow-ons and not following on, obviously, because we want to be full disclosure, right, Uh, that we are a seed stage pure play firm. Uh, And so what tends to happen is a discussion where we share that. For the entrepreneur, we basically have them think through the scenarios. If you are successful, uh, I have to tell you that the big firms that typically follow on to Ulu Ventures companies, they do not want Ulu Ventures to participate in those rounds. You know, like when SoFi was raising its next round, uh, they were happy for us not to participate. And that's really the majority of the experience that we're having at Ulu, just because so many of our companies have tremendous follow-on opportunities from lifecycle investors. Then the other one is your company is doing really poorly. And you could um, have us follow on into your company, but most of the people that we're investing in are highly talented, highly skilled, highly marketable individuals. And I think for a lot of them, they realize that there's a point where they also will need to call their situation. And for us to have this kind of conversation at that point where we say, hey, you've given it a really great shot. Um, You've collected all this data. Here's what the data is telling us. Do you want to continue to do this and keep beating your head against this wall? Uh, Most of our founders at that point are like, not really. But in other firms, what would typically happen is that the VCs would try to guilt these entrepreneurs into sticking around, selling the company, and then um, being with another company for a few years before they can actually maybe pursue something that they're personally interested in. And our perspective is, you know, if you've got better ideas, we'd rather invest in the better idea than have you try to eat out a very small return on this investment today. That makes a ton of sense. It also speaks to this other concept that I know you exercise very actively, which is decision-making frameworks. And it makes a ton of sense, right? You're putting the vast majority of your capital at that first round. You're investing in a lot of companies. You want something systemic in nature and how you think about these companies and remove some of the biases. And we've seen biases, right? You see biases based on anchoring on a past experience that happened five or 10 years ago, or seeing a pattern that is a false positive. Tell us a little bit about the uh, decision-making framework that Ulu uses and why it's so unique. So we use a framework that's called decision analysis that was developed by Professor Ron Howard at Stanford University. And basically, it's a systems engineering approach to looking at a prospective event and trying to develop a probabilistic view of the likely outcome of that future event. And this was 
initially started for things like uh, launching rockets into space, <laughs> you know, where you actually hope that those millions or billions of dollars actually get that rocket to take off and eventually land with living humans back on Earth. And so the industries that have a lot of dollars at risk, but also tend to be hits driven, include things like pharmaceuticals and oil and gas, where you know, you may develop a compound, but to develop a billion dollar blockbuster drug is really uncommon. And if you don't do that, eventually you end up getting sold to the next bigger company um, in your industry. And so what we do is apply decision analysis. And we also use a framework that was developed by uh, Jeffrey Moore called Crossing the Chasm, where we look at the life cycle of a startup company from early stage to cross the chasm, to mass market, to um, winning a market. And that's typically the, the pattern of the successful company is to become really the 1% of companies that are public that end up achieving a billion dollars in revenue. And we try to parameterize all of the risks into uh, four categories, one of which is team risk, uh, product risk, market risk, and financing risk at each of those stages, as well as uh, do a very detailed total addressable market that's built from the grounds up. And we also look at things like exit multiples, dilution prospects, and we try to get a picture today of what the future looks like five to 10 years out. It is thinking about things from a slightly different perspective to give yourself a unique advantage, especially in this crowded seed market. But going back to that decision framework, so you go through this for every single portfolio company that you're looking through. What have you found in those experiences? Are there things in conventional venture wisdom that you found as either being overrated or things that you've seen within your models that speak to a higher degree of probability of success that may not be talked about as much. One of the real questions that you're asking when you're making an investment is, you know, how likely is this team to succeed? And then uh, how big is this opportunity? And so clearly, I think our approach looks at the opportunity similarly to how others may look at it, but it's quantified in such a way that we can learn from it. If you think about the typical investment memo, it's a bunch of qualitative statements. And frankly, I've written tons of qualitative statements as an attorney my whole life, right? Like I wrote IPO documents and, you know, I can tell you about risk and not quantify them. And that really is not a great framework for learning. When we uh, assess a probability that a team is going to succeed at one stage or another, there's a number there. And what's going to happen over time is we're going to see why a company failed and we're going to go back and we're going to see what our assessments were. If we said like, you know, this company had a 90% chance of succeeding on the team and the team uh, is fighting and breaking apart. Well, we know that somehow our assessments were highly off and we need to figure out how do we learn more about teams before we actually make investments. The other thing though, that's a much bigger deal in the early stages is whether or not a team can succeed. 
Obviously, it's one of the biggest risk failures um, for startups. 60% of teams fail. Um, this is according to a Harvard uh, Business School professor. So 60% of, of companies fail because of team issues. And so the interesting thing is when you look at team risk, when people are different from the person whom they're raising capital, that assessment of risk is likely to be much higher than it may actually be in real life. And we think that that's one of the big benefits of following a process where all comers, male, female, whatever gender, uh, whatever race, are all put through the same exact um, way of thinking about it. And they all have the same 10x probability weighted hurdle. And that ability to look at teams more systematically tends to reduce the sense that risks are higher than they really are. And again, this speaks to eliminating some of the biases. You and Clint obviously are a diverse team. You've built a diverse team around you. And one of your mandates, or at least main areas of focus, is investing in underrepresented founders. And it's something that I know you've worked heavily on over the years, both at Ulu, personally, through Coffin Fellows and the like. What have you seen the data show in terms of the benefits of investing in diverse teams? I could talk both about Ulu, but also about the industry. When we started, there wasn't a lot of industry data about venture-backed companies and the performance of teams uh, with gender or ethnic or racial diversity, but there is data today. There had been public data around public companies and the performance and people like McKinsey and uh, Credit Suisse and others had done uh, some pretty great research to show that teams that had gender or racial diversity tended to outperform uh, or companies tended to outperform those that didn't have it, um, whether it be in the C-suite or the board. Um, both of those were indicative of higher financial performance. We hypothesized um, in 2008 that that would be true of venture-backed teams as well. And my own insight into that came from working at Google, which in the early days was actually a very diverse company. Um, and when you think about the early team of vice presidents, there were three out of the 13 people that were women. There were two of them that were immigrants. Uh, one of them was a child of immigrants. The first general counsel was African-American. The first CFO was Cuban-American. And yet hardly anybody ever talked about why Google was so successful. And I think it had a lot to do with that initial diversity and that most of the teams internally ran with a male-female leading team. And that was underappreciated by, I think, the market. When we started Ulu Ventures, we thought that ethnically and gender diverse teams would actually outperform because we thought that they would have more information, more resources, more perspectives to bring to bear on the problems of real companies. And what we have learned is that that's true in our portfolio, but the industry has also learned that that's true for venture-backed startups. And studies have been done by the Kaufman Fellows Research Center that indicate that, by Boston Consulting Group that indicate that, and by Harvard Business School that indicate that. And we're starting to see more people understand that and see some of the studies that you just referenced, but it's still early. It's, it, it feels like we've gotten a lot of great momentum on both venture funds or fund managers getting capital from LPs 
as well as founders getting capital that are diverse founding teams from from venture capitalists. But it's still early, right? If you look at the numbers, the number of women that are in decision-making positions within venture is still less than 12%. The number of African-American and Latino managers is still less than 2%. So what needs to change for this not to just be conjecture and people talking about, hey, this is a great thing? What do we see, need to see more of, both from the LP standpoint, as well as you know venture firms themselves? Well, I do want to say that the longest term study was done by the Kaufman Fellows Research Center, and that covered 20 years worth of venture investments. It did not have the actual diversity data on individuals, but what they did was use AI-driven perceived diversity as the drivers of uh, company performance. And what they found was that if you had ethnic diversity in the founding team, you had a 30% greater earning than you had with all white teams. If you had uh, diverse C officers, you had a 60% uh, increase to profitability for those companies. And they also um, had similar results around gender diversity. So part of it is um, there is data, unfortunately, it's not based on like the actual. Uh, survey of the individuals, but there's enough of a sense that this is the right direction to go in. And then in terms of what needs to happen in the industry, there's a few things. Um, It's very clear that women VCs make many more investments, like 2x the number of investments that men make. Um, So if you're going to invest in a way that is equitable in the industry, and I think actually just intelligent given the fact that, you know, 57% of people who attend college are women today. Um, Women actually exceed men in terms of educational attainment at both the graduate and the undergraduate levels. So the fact that we're only investing, you know, 2% into um, female-led companies and 12% into teams with gender diversity is just ridiculous. Um, and I think the the notion that uh, we also need to see more people of color investing on teams is really huge. In our own study of investments in the U.S. in underrepresented minorities showed that 50 firms made two-thirds of the investments in underrepresented minority founders in each of the last five years. And all of those teams had an underrepresented minority on the team. That certainly makes sense to me and it aligns with the data that suggests that people that are underrepresented are much more likely to back other people that are underrepresented. But let's shift to the LP side for a second. We've seen some recent pushes, real ones, of LPs looking to capitalize diverse teams, either as part of their mandate or their entire mandate. And we can talk about folks like First Close and Goldman accolade and most recently screen door partners but tell us a little bit about your experience did you see some of those tailwinds of lps wanting to really lean in on diverse managers lps we have some of them in our portfolio that i think are doing amazing things and we've tried to uh open up educational opportunities uh to lps along with uh some of uh the folks that our investors in Ulu, such as Illumin Capital, which is another firm like Plexo that has 
um, focused on diversity and diverse managers. The things that we've seen LPs do that are different because they have gone through these kinds of education processes within uh, ULU. One of our investors is the University of Rochester. Uh, when they went through our process and they were going internally through a process around what could they do in the issues of diversity to better the industry, they created an LP interest group that was committed to meeting diverse managers in every asset category. When they started um, shortly after our program, they had 100 participants. They're now up to 350 participants of limited partners that have sorted through hundreds of diverse manager decks, meetings. And I think that that's real action. You know, part of it is a lot of LPs have just never even met diverse teams. So creating a mechanism, this online community that they did has been huge for them to just increase uh, the number of people who are actually meeting diverse teams. The other thing that um, we tried to emphasize and that Illumin Capital research that was done at Stanford Spark Center uh, demonstrated is that with the same performance people will, LPs will take fewer meetings with black managers than with white managers. So we're trying to get people aware of how bias is actually affecting their portfolio and that they are turning away opportunities from diverse people. And one of the LPs who participated in our events subsequently made their first investment in a female-led team, the first one ever, in their um, endowments history. And then when they went through their financial performance, they realized that a underrepresented minority firm actually outperformed one of their managers in every category that they looked at and they're switching. So taking action is what LPs can do. That's heartening. And, and I have seen a number of folks, you mentioned um, Illumin, we talked about Plexo, Goldman, First Close, we're going to have some news on, a, on another fund that's coming out that is dedicated on focusing on emerging managers that are diverse. I am excited to see some of the tailwinds that are coming, and I do think it's going to be one of the major trends over the next decade. Uh, you talk about the social versus financial impetus for making investments in diverse managers um, and diverse entrepreneurs. When we researched the landscape of venture investments, there were fewer than 100 investments made in underrepresented minority-led companies in the entire country in each of the last five years. So there's an incredible dearth of investment in these communities and these founders. I support both methods of making investments in diverse founders. I want to see people who want to have social impact investing in diverse teams I serve as a volunteer member of the Acumen Fund America Investment Committee. Over half of their impact investments are in underrepresented minority founders and women. And I think that's awesome. I also support um, LPs investing in the highest performing managers and not making it seem like it's a trade-off. I was, I was told in my fundraising that 
they some of LPs did not want to invest in Ulu because we didn't need help. I'm not in a philanthropic organization. I am making incredible returns. We have a 5x multiple going on fund one. Uh, I want people to invest in us because it is what enables them to give scholarships to students, to give grants to organizations that need it because they're profit driven and they want to do the most they can with the money they have to help the most people. That's incredibly well said, and it's something that needs to be reinforced, that there isn't a trade-off between financial returns and making an impact. And we've um, started to see some of those winds of change. I think it's still slow, but hopefully with data and with continued success of diverse managers and diverse founders, we will see more of an open funnel of capital going toward those groups. I want to end with our heat check where I ask you three rapid fire questions. The first one is now that you've been a venture investor for some time, what's the most counterintuitive lesson you've learned? There's never enough time and that you will miss out on some great opportunities. Um, There's probably a handful of unicorns and public companies that we did not invest in. And most of the time, it's just because there's just not enough hours in the day. Uh, And I think that we just have to accept human limitations at some point, especially given people complain about assets under management and the uh, 2% or 2.5% that managers get. But when you think about it, in corporate America, you get 10% uh, for SG&A and to support uh, the operations of a company. We don't have that. So we have to do the best we can with uh, the resources that we have on hand. And you have to learn to accept that you can't do everything. Well, you can't do everything, and people do sometimes underestimate the amount of work that goes into running a firm, and we've talked about that quite extensively on this show. You mentioned missing out on opportunities, and I, invariably, you're going to miss. Every VC misses out on an opportunity. It could be because of lack of time, or it's you looked at something, but you passed on it for your own reasons. Was there a company that you can point to that you and Clint looked at, but didn't invest, and now you look at it and say, oh, well, we should have invested. It's obvious now in hindsight. If there is a company, I'd love to hear it. And what you actually learned from that, Miss, was there some learning lesson that came out of that? So we passed on Carta. And I have to say, I think Henry is an awesome CEO. He met a lot of our criteria. But one of the things that he wasn't was the ideator of the company. Um, That had been Kumar, I think, uh, had been the ideator of the firm. And we really thought, there is something about being a founder that is really special. And when you've created an idea, you tend to um, have more stick-to-itiveness than somebody who is um, hired on early um, in a company. And so for us, that insight is interesting because it's worked both ways. We've seen non-founders be really successful and we've seen, um, some founders who were ideators but not operators <laughs> do worse than what we expected. Um, so we've learned to take into consideration both uh, their founder status and their kind of operating company background and how those two factors can go in one direction or the other. Sure, that make, makes total sense. And then You've invested with a lot of great people and and people that you've just met over over the years in investing. But 
Is there an investor out there that you particularly admire? And if so, like who is it and and what exactly about him really inspires you? It's really interesting because I, I think more in terms of firms than I think of in terms of individuals. And partly because I'm trying to think at the firm level, I know it's easy to kind of get caught up in the cult of personality of an individual uh, investor. Um, but to me, uh, what I think of as really incredible are firms that have actually made generational transitions and increase their diversity. And I think of Sequoia when I think of that kind of a firm. Uh, Obviously, some of the partners have probably been around 30 plus years, um, but the new generation of partners that we see includes racial and ethnic diversity as well as gender diversity. Uh, We see them uh, continuing to be one of the leading firms in the industry. We see them actually playing a smart portfolio construction with a large number of investments um, under management. Uh, And I think that they're kind of a role model firm for us. If I could think of uh, being the Sequoia of Seed um, and becoming the premier seed firm in the United States, that's my goal. That's a great aspiration. And you're you're right. They have been a multi-generational iconic firm that to this day remains head and shoulders, I think, above almost anybody else. And so that's a great name. Uh, Miriam, this has uh, been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your thoughts. And again, I, I, I'd end with congratulating you on this fresh source of capital for Fund3 where you can back some amazing founders. We're on fire. <laughs> We're totally about Fund3. Thank you so much, Samira, for having me on. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. I really hope you enjoyed this week's show with Miriam. To learn more about her or Ulu Ventures, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you'll find detailed notes of the show. While you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released. 